We're in Paul's letter, the first letter to the Corinthians. What does it mean to be mature? An interesting thought experiment might be to to break up into small groups. We're not going to do that this morning, but to talk a little bit about what does it mean to be the total package, to be complete. That's what mature means. It means to be complete. If you were to gather with your neighbors or your coworkers or your family members, I wonder how the world might define what maturity is. Perhaps we might assign it to age, Those who are older among us, we might designate as being mature, and in an earthly sense, that'd certainly be true. As we consider those who are complete, maybe the total package, it's it's those who are both emotionally and relationally competent. Maybe they're good at business, and they make good decisions, and they're good with their money, and all these things would be good things. But when the Bible talks about maturity... When the Bible addresses the topic of wisdom, is that what it has in mind? I wonder if that's what you have in mind. Those things which, in the back of our minds, we think, if I were this, then I would be complete. The total package, that's what maturity is. I wonder what comes to your mind when you ask yourself those things. Well, our passage this afternoon In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, Yet among the mature, those who are complete, we do impart wisdom. And so in our text this afternoon, maturity is in view. What does it mean to be mature, to be complete, to be whole, to be in a sense the total package? That's what we're going to be considering And as we do, really, there's just going to be a big idea, one big idea emerging from our passage, and it's this, that God imparts his wisdom to believers by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. God imparts his wisdom to believers by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. And I want you to keep that big idea in mind as we consider this theme of maturity. What does it mean to be complete? Keeping that in mind, would you just briefly stand with me, if you're able, for the public reading of God's word to honor it? Beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, well, then they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? 
So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. For he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. But the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You be seated. Just by way of reminder, this church is a divided church. They're a divided church because they have cobbled up into various factions and tribes around leaders, around gifts. They wanted to be seen as wise and powerful in the world's eyes. They had mistaken what maturity is or what wisdom is. And in mistaking what wisdom is, true wisdom, then they have mistaken what maturity is. And so the Apostle Paul is aiming, he's going through great labor to show them that it's the word of the cross that is the power of God, that Christ is the wisdom and the power of God. He wants them to rest not in human wisdom, which is folly and passing away. He wants them, chapter 2, verse 5, to rest in the power of God. And we should do the same. Picking up in verse 6, the beginning of where we read, notice that Paul is saying, yet among the mature we impart wisdom. Here, this idea of maturity is being contrasted to what the Apostle Paul says at the beginning of, of chapter 3. He goes, you are all acting like worldly people. You're Christians, but you're acting just like the world, and he calls them children. He goes, what we're teaching is not ultimately for children, not worldly people that want to impress the world. What we're communicating, what we're imparting, what we're teaching, what we're proclaiming is for the mature, for those who are complete in Christ. Those called by God. Remember he told them earlier to consider their calling. He's talking about those who've been called by God by the power of the gospel through the Holy Spirit. And I want you to notice beginning in the second half of verse 6 going all the way through the end of verse 9 the apostle Paul is going to contrast God's wisdom with the world's wisdom. He says you're all acting like worldly people, your children, loving the world's wisdom, wooing the world's wisdom. But I want to persuade you that God's wisdom is altogether better. And it's altogether unlike the world's wisdom. And so here we're going to see beginning in verse 6, all the way through verse 13, the first point of our sermon, that is God's wisdom imparted. God's wisdom imparted. And we see, first of all, that God's wisdom is unlike the world's wisdom. And it's unlike the world's wisdom in at least four ways. Notice in the second half of verse 6 that God's wisdom, first of all, is eternal. Those who are called receive a wisdom that is not ultimately of this age. That's what we saw all the way back up in chapter 1, verse 20. No, they receive a wisdom that is from before the ages. Verse 7. 
The world's wisdom, he's saying, is doomed to pass away. It is finite and it is foolish. But God's wisdom is as unchanging as God himself. It can no more pass away than God can die. If God is eternal, then his wisdom must be eternal. And so we see, first of all, that God's wisdom is not like the world's wisdom because God's wisdom is eternal. But secondly, in verse 7, we see that God's wisdom is also revealed. It's not something conjured up according to the rational powers of man, according to the rules of logic in and of ourselves, not according to any natural laws. No, it's something that is divinely and supernaturally revealed. That the mature, those who are complete, those who have been called by God, well, they know that which was previously secret and hidden. That's what he says here in verse 7. Hidden from whom? Well, notice what he says, the rulers of this age, it's those who are wise and of power, who are powerful and of noble birth. It's all those who hear the word of the gospel about a crucified God, and they think that is the silliest thing that we have ever heard of. He says, well, the wisdom of God, which is God's wisdom revealed in Christ, has been hidden from the rulers of this age. And that's reinforced in the very next verse. In verse 8, not only is it something that has been revealed to the mature, though it's been previously hidden, it is hidden from the world. Look at verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this. That is the wisdom of God imparted by the apostles. None of them understood this. Because if they had, then they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. And so the mature and the complete... Those who've been called by God according to his grace in the gospel, the mature understand that none of the rulers of this, what none of the rulers of this age understood. That in the word of the cross, we behold the very glory of God in the face of Christ. We see the very glory of God in his crucified son. But beloved, that is not how the world sees Jesus. He's saying if it did, then the world would have worshipped him instead of murdered him. But why is it? Why has God's wisdom been hidden from the world? What is God's purposes behind all of this? Well, really, everything that the Apostle Paul is saying in verses 6, 7, and 8 is what the prophet Isaiah has already said before. It's really remarkable how the message of the apostles fall perfectly in line with the message of the prophets. That the prophetic message of the Old Testament falls perfectly in line with the apostolic message of the New Testament. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, I'm not giving you anything new here. I'm just saying what Isaiah said in light of Christ. And then he quotes Isaiah 64, 4, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. We see here the fourth and final way in this passage why God's wisdom is different from the world's wisdom, and that is that God's wisdom is a gift. It is a gift to his people. Now, I want you to put your finger or your ribbon in your Bible for just a minute, and I want you to go to your left to Isaiah 64. Let's see exactly what it is that the Apostle Paul is trying to impress upon us. 
Isaiah chapter 64. If you're not used to handling a Bible, you can probably split your Bible right into the middle and you'll find Isaiah or you'll be close. If you're in Psalms or Proverbs, go to your right. If you're in Jeremiah or some of those minor prophets, you can go back to your left and you'll find Isaiah nestled right in the middle of your Bible. And we are going to be in chapter 64. Those chapters are the big numbers. And we're just going to be looking at a handful of verses for context. Look up first at chapter 63. Look at what Isaiah says. He begins in verse 15 by pleading with God to look down. It is to look down from heaven. But his plea in chapter 64, verse 1, escalates. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and not merely look down, but you would come down. That's because in verse 2, Isaiah longs for God's people to be transformed by God's holiness. You see that, that word fire repeated twice. Fire in the Old Testament is the most common metaphor for God's holy presence. It's repeated 13 times in the prophet Isaiah. So when he calls the fire, as the fire kindles brushwood, as the fire causes water to boil, come down, be with your people, make your people holy as, as you are holy. And then in verses 3 and 4, notice he says, When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. He's recalling Sinai and the redemption of Israel from Egypt. Verse 4, from of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for them. Notice there in verse 4, that's what the Apostle Paul is quoting. Isaiah saying, you have redeemed your people before and you can do it again. When you brought us out of bondage in Egypt, you did things that the world never expected by means that nobody was looking for. You revealed yourself in ways that can never be seen or heard with human eyes, but, but can only be seen with the eyes and the ears of faith. As with those who wait for you, into verse 4. Those who love you, the Apostle Paul paraphrases. So what is it then that describes this, this faithful waiting remnant? Well, we see that in verse 5. See, their waiting is not just a passive waiting, it's an active waiting. They joyfully work righteousness and they remember all of God's ways. But then beginning in verse 6, he says, we have a problem, or middle of verse 5 rather. Isaiah says, here's the problem. Nobody does these things. You were angry and we sinned in our sins. We have been a long time and... And shall we be saved? We've all become like one who's unclean and, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There's no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and you have made us melt in the hand of your iniquities. He's saying, how can we do righteousness, verse five, when in verse six, we have no righteousness. He's saying, how can we do any kind of joyful works at all, verse five, when we are as spiritually dead as a fallen leaf there at the end of verse six. How can we know you so as to remember you? Verse 5, when no one calls upon your name, verse 7. When you have hidden your face from us. That language of hidden is important, isn't it? This is all, these are the categories that the Apostle Paul is working from. And so Isaiah is pleading with God, don't just look down, but come down. And his prayer is essentially this in chapter and verse 5. 
shall we be saved? Are we going to be saved? Will you keep your promises? Will you redeem your people? How are you going to do it? Oh, he says such wisdom is secret and hidden from us. You have hidden it from us. We'll now go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul says, well, listen, what was once hidden, the face of God, that is the very saving power of God for his people, what was once hidden in Isaiah's day is now been revealed in Christ. And in the context of chapter 1 and chapter 2, what the apostle is saying is that whenever we preach the word of, of the cross, that is the apostolic message of Christ crucified, well then God graciously and powerfully acts through the Holy Spirit to impart the saving knowledge of Christ to a regenerate people that he makes known to us through the preaching of Christ what has been hidden from ages. That is, that which God had decreed before the very ages, that which is, verse 7, for our glory, the wisdom of God that is Christ. All of that is ultimately setting us up for the bulk of, of Paul's point, beginning in verse 10 through the end of the chapter. We see that God's wisdom is altogether unlike the world's wisdom. The world in its eyes and its ears cannot see God's wisdom. They cannot know God's wisdom. They wouldn't have rejected Christ. They certainly would have murdered him if they could see and behold the, the truth of the gospel. But the Apostle Paul says here interpreting Isaiah that what no eye has seen or ear heard or the heart of man imagined, those things which God has prepared for those who love him, those things which, verse 12, have been freely given by God, these things, he says, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. He's saying this is the great and mighty work of salvation that Isaiah was longing for and pleading for, and it's happened in Christ. But we have to answer a question in these handful of verses, verses 10 through 13. Who exactly is the we? Who's the us? Interpreters have all kinds of ideas. I even put it up in a poll on Twitter. Is it the great morass of theology that is Twitter? Is it every believer? Is that who the we is? Is it Christian teachers in general? Or is it, is it talking about the apostles? And, and there's all kinds of views on who the we is. And I've really given a lot of thought to it this week, and I've studied, and I, thought, and I think I've arrived, Lord willing, at, at what the apostle intends. Who is the we that is being referred here? Well, it can't just be the Apostle Paul, right? Because he's, he's talking in the first person, plural, we. So he's talking about more than just himself. But it also seems to not be talking about all believers because the we and the us is being distinguished from the all who are spiritual at the end of verse 13. And now that is talking about all believers. At the very least, the believers that are in Corinth. And so who is it talking about? I take that we in verse 10, that we is an apostolic we. 
It is Paul the Apostle and his apostolic band. All throughout this letter, in his second letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is, is fervently eager to defend his apostleship. And he constantly, time and again, refers to we apostles and us apostles. We see that most prominently in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. And so Paul, I think, is referring to his apostolic Band. And he's already established that at the beginning of the letter. Chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Paul called to the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. To be an apostle is to be one who has the objective revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ made personally known to him by the Lord Jesus himself. In other words, there's no more apostles today. It's those who had the will of the Father revealed to them by the, by the risen Christ personally. And here, because Paul is traveling with a group of people who are faithful to that message, well, then in the we, he can incorporate those who are with him, those who are faithful to the same apostolic message that he and the other apostles are teaching. And that group would include Apollos and Stephanus and, and many others. And so in this sense of we... He's saying, we've got the truth. And the reason that we've got the truth is because I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. Why is this distinction important? Why is it important that we identify the we in an apostolic way and not as an, in an all-believers way or in every Christian teacher in every age kind of way? And the answer is because God has declared his objective truth, his eternal wisdom that which was once hidden and has now been revealed in and through Jesus, that the Lord Jesus reveals the will of God for salvation. And then Jesus shared that with his apostles and then commissioned those who are with him, those to whom he has revealed the Father's will to teach the same truth and then write that truth down. Beloved, if we don't get this right then we are going to play into the very same problem that was going on in Corinth. Oh yeah, well see, I'm a spiritual person. I've got the Holy Spirit. God reveals things directly to me. Listen to me. Follow me. How many churches have been spiritually abused by so-called apostles who would presume to add to what God has revealed to those to whom he's personally revealed himself. And so by rightly understanding this is Paul's burden to root this church, not in the world's wisdom, but in the apostolic message, then we guard ourselves from entering into the same error of presuming ourselves to to enjoy God's revelation in the same way that the apostles did. Beloved, that's, that's not how it works. God has revealed his truth to his apostles and the apostolic message that has been inscripturated that we have here in our hands 
is the foundation of the church, that the foundation of the church is the prophets and the apostles with Christ as its cornerstone. And it is the basis of all true fellowship with God, such that there is no true church apart from this apostolic we, and there is no fellowship with God apart from their message. To add to it, to depart from it, or to give something other than this message is to abandon true fellowship with God and is to undermine the very foundation of the true church. Oh, there's a lot at stake. And I think verse 11 helps to make this point. Why are we dependent upon that which God has revealed to his apostles and that the apostles now teach to us? Because it says here, who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person? Right before that, he says, the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. The meaning of this should be quite obvious. Who are you and I to say who God is on our own? You and I cannot know who God is and what his will is on the basis of our own intellect or our own reason or our own power and to presume that we can, well, that is the height of arrogance. How many times have we talked to somebody about who God is and they say something like, well, I don't really like to think about God that way. Well, what gives you the authority to define God? How arrogant is that? It would be like, for instance... My son in his room has parakeets, a couple parakeets that are loud and noisy and messy. It would be like, for instance, Nicholas's birds looking over at Nicholas as Nicholas is working on algebra at his desk and reasoning their way to complex equations. And you go, well, that's ridiculous. There's no way that a bird can reason their way to solve complex math problems. Like, birds can't do algebra. Why? Because they've got bird brains. Well, the same is true of us spiritually. How can we who are finite ever presume to think that we can define who God is? We don't have it in us. We are, in a sense, too bird-brained to be able to do it unless God in his mercy reveals himself to us. Or if we were to attack verse 11 from another angle, we might do something like this. If, if you were to look at the person around you, the person next to you, or the person that just kind of naturally falls in your line of sight, I wonder, could you discern just by looking at them what it is that they're thinking? What were they thinking three minutes ago? Well, I wonder how long Pastor Jeff is going to go today. <laughs> wonder what we're going to eat afterwards. Should we do Tex-Mex or should we do Chick-fil-A? No, Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday. Why is that the only day I desire Chick-fil-A? You don't know what's going on in one another's minds. Why? Because if you want to know what's going on in one another's minds and that person sitting next to you, that person that you're looking at, it's getting a little awkward now, so you can stop. What do they have to do? They've got to tell you. They have to reveal themselves to you such that if they don't, 
then they remain hidden and a mystery from you. And if that's true from you to the person sitting next to you, being so alike as we are in our minds and our bodies, how far apart must we be in our own worldly understanding to saying, well, I like to think of God as that is the height of foolishness. That is the height of arrogance. That if you and I are going to know God, that God has to reveal himself to us. And the only one who can plumb the depths of God, the very godness of God, so as to reveal who God is and what his will is for salvation, is God himself. And that's the point. And I want to try to unwrap it. So put your theology hats on for just a minute because I want to try to unwrap it just in three steps. First of all, the truth about who God is. Remember, we're thinking, if we're going to know who God is, then God is the one that has to reveal himself to us. Only God can search the depths of God. So first of all, the truth about God then is revealed by God specifically in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to take you on a little tour because this theme is so woven through all the Apostle John's writings that it's hard to miss it. So keep your hand here in 1 Corinthians. And I want you to go to the, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts. No, wait a minute. John. John chapter 3. So we want to consider, first of all, that the truth about God is revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus makes God known such that there is no other God than the one that we find revealed in Christ through his incarnation and in his teaching. John 3, beginning in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He's referring to himself. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Think about what the Apostle Paul is saying in, in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. He's talking about worldly wisdom. Well, Jesus is using the same categories. Paul's not saying anything new. He's just saying what the Lord Jesus Christ taught him. That's what it means to be an apostle. Well, the one who's on the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He, that is the one who comes from heaven, bears witness to what he has seen and heard, those heavenly things, yet no one receives his testimony. It's being rejected. Why? Because they think it's folly. And yet whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. So we need to consider, first of all, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one that reveals the Father, that to know God, we have to know Christ. Only God can plumb the depths of God, and so the Son of God reveals the will of God for salvation. But secondly, Jesus reveals God's wisdom in his person and his message, Jesus then reveals it to his apostles during his earthly ministry. And then he promises them, as we read earlier in our service, to send the Holy Spirit to remind them of it and to reveal it to them, to teach them in its fullness. 
Go over a handful of chapters to John chapter 14. Here we see Jesus. He's just with his disciples. This isn't a message to the crowds. It's not a message to the, to the 70. It's not a message. It's just a message given to those whom he would commission to be foundations of the church through the preaching of Christ crucified. And he says this, John 14, 24. Or rather, 25. He says, these things I have spoken to you while I'm with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, that is after I depart from you, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So he says, I'm not going to be with you forever. While I've been here, I have revealed God, the will of God for salvation, who he is and what his will is in my person and in my words, but I'm not going to be here. But there's a sense in which I will be here because the Father's going to send the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, who is God, very God. And he is going to take what the Father has revealed in Christ and he is going to apply it to the apostles by reminding them and teaching them all that the Lord Jesus Christ taught them during their earthly ministry. And this gets reiterated in John chapter 16, verse 12. Jesus says, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. And he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has is mine, Therefore, I said all that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You see that, that pronoun repeated, you, you, you. Who's it referring to? It's not referring to all believers. We so often think that John 16 is talking about the Spirit's ministry to all believers. Is it true that you and I are indwelt with the Spirit? Yes. Is it true that he illumines us to the truth of the gospel? Yes. But here, Jesus is promising a work of the Spirit in the commission of the apostles for a very unique and specific purpose. And that is that they would be the very foundation of the church through the proclamation of the gospel as Christ has become the yes and amen to all of God's promises. It's an apostolic you. Not in all Christians everywhere for all times you. I'm entrusting to you by the Holy Spirit a unique ministry to send you as my apostles. And so the truth about God is revealed through Jesus. Jesus reveals that truth to his apostles. Then Jesus gives his Holy Spirit to his apostles, the very Holy Spirit that reveals those things to them that has been hidden from even the prophets like Isaiah for the unique task of teaching and writing things down for the sake of those who are spiritual. That is the church, verse 13. For all those whom the Lord calls, such that there is no fellowship apart from this apostolic witness. Last passage from John. Go to 1 John chapter 1. John's going to slam dunk this point. Why is the apostolic we so important when it comes to the message of Christ crucified? First John chapter one, he says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Now, who are we talking about? 
which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Who's the we? We ain't talking about us unless you have had a face-to-face encounter with the living God through the risen and glorified Jesus Christ. And if that's true, then we're going to bring the white jackets in. He's saying we, it's an apostolic we. We are the ones that heard him. We are the ones who saw him with our eyes. We're the ones who looked upon him. We're the ones who touched him with our very hands. What was it? What did we hear and see and look upon and touch? Well, all of it was the word of life, that life that was made manifest, that was incarnate, that was revealed. And he says, we have seen it. What no eye has seen, we've seen it. What no ear has heard, we heard it. Why? To testify to it and to proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father, the Father's will, and was made manifest to us. Manifest how? Manifest by the word of life through the incarnation of Christ. God revealed himself to Jesus. Jesus revealed God to us. Now we preach the message that he, through the power of the Holy Spirit, gave us to preach. So that verse 13, that which we have, or three, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, because John 14 and 16, this is what the Holy Spirit is empowering them to do. We have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be literally mature. There is no true fellowship with God. There is no true church without the foundation of the apostolic we. The apostolic message of Christ crucified. Go back to 1 Corinthians. Let's wrap up our passage. As we make our way back, I'm just by way of reminder, I'm saying all of these things to you so that you might be convinced and persuaded that you cannot know God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And you cannot know Jesus apart from the apostolic testimony. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, perhaps you've come with a friend and you're investigating Christian things, then I want to submit to you based on what we just considered that you can't make Jesus to be whatever it is that you want him to be. You can't craft God to be whatever you want him to be. You can't say, well, I like to think about God this way. There is only one true God. That one true God has been revealed in the Christ of the Gospels. And that Christ, the Lord Jesus, has revealed the truth about God to his apostles who have written these very words that we've been considering so that you might come to a saving knowledge of this God, of the one who sent his very own son to the life of perfect obedience that you in a million years could never live and to die a substitutionary death in the place of all who repent and believe in him, a death that you deserve and will face one day if you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, if you consider this message as stupid 
as foolishness, as folly. If anyone, you cannot know God apart from the Lord Jesus. And you cannot know the Lord Jesus Christ apart from the apostolic testimony. And we've come to know the apostolic testimony because God in his kindness has inscripturated it for us and illumined us by his Holy Spirit to its truth. And beloved, if anyone, 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 anyone claims to have received knowledge from God beyond that which has been written down by the apostles, this is the apostle Paul's great burden. If anyone has received knowledge from God beyond that which has been inscripturated by the apostles, then they are a false teacher. They are to be cast out of the church for destruction. But then the question becomes how then, if so much is at stake, how can Christians like us discern between true and false teaching? And the answer is in the handful of verses at the end of the chapter, verses 14 through 16. We judge everything by that apostolic message through which we were converted and by which we are being sanctified in the power of the Holy Spirit. Since it's been a while since we've read it, let's begin in verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, those things being the apostolic witness to the person and work of Jesus Christ, the natural person does not accept those things. They're foolishness to him. The word of the cross is folly to him. And he's not able to understand them. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned. Only those with the Holy Spirit can discern it. Verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. So we go back to the original question. What does it mean to be mature? What does it mean to be the total package? What does it mean to be complete? Are we wise? I wonder how we would answer that question as Covenant Baptist Church. Are we, are we wise? Or better yet, here he's using a synonym for wise. Are we spiritual? Are we those who are rooted in the testimony about Christ crucified? How discerning are we He's saying, because ultimately, if you're depending upon the world's wisdom to be discerning, you're going to be led astray because you're going to be swept away and seduced time and again by those who are fancy in their speech and and logical in their presentation and powerful in the world. Those are the ones that you're going to want to be around. But he says, no, those are the ones who think the gospel's crazy talk. True wisdom originates with this apostolic we. It originates with the the apostles' message about Christ crucified, that is the revelation of Jesus Christ concerning the person of God and of his will for salvation. So beloved, if you and I come to the apostle Paul to be taught by him and to be taught by the other apostles, not to receive anything else from God, not to add to his word or take away from his word, but to, but to give ourselves to his word, what he has revealed through his apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit concerning Christ, then we will be able to discern the very truth that has been hidden from the world. But if we remain dazzled and captivated by worldly wisdom, then we are going to remain dumb. Dumb. 
we're gonna be like those children at the beginning of verse three. Not those who are mature and complete, but those who may yet be Christians, but look and act just like the world. We empty the, pow- we empty the cross of its power. So how do we listen then? How do we become mature? Jesus said, take care how you hear. The author of Hebrews rebukes the church to which he's writing, and he says, you have become dull of hearing. The unspiritual person cannot discern spiritual things because they are things that a mere human ear cannot hear and mere human eyes cannot see. But the spiritual person who hears and sees with ears and eyes of faith given to him as a gift by God through the Holy Spirit, that person, that person judges all things in light of Christ. And he is judged by no one. Now, what does he mean by that? We're judged all the time, aren't we? We're judged by the world. We're judged by politicians. We're judged by Target. What does it mean we're not judged? It means that our consciences are so bound to the word of God that we know when we, when we stand before the glorified Lord Jesus at his return that we will not be ashamed. And if the whole world rails against us, we will not move because we know the truth from a lie. And we are not seduced by worldly power. And we're not seduced by political influence. And we're not seduced by rhetorical mastery. We have had the truth about Christ revealed to us by the Spirit in the apostolic message. So, beloved, the more that you grow in the knowledge and the grace of Christ is revealed in the scriptures, the more wise you'll become, the better you'll be able to discern truth from error. We want to be people of the word. We want to be Bible people. Now, this doesn't mean that you become an expert in foreign policy. The Bible doesn't make you an expert in epidemiology. I don't care what all the Christians thought the Bible made them over the last three years. It doesn't make you an expert in those things, though it does make you discerning. It means that you'll be able to discern God's truth from God's lies. It makes us discerning in the way that Martin Luther was discerning. You remember Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms on standing on trial before Pope Leo X. He said, here I stand. I am bound by scripture. My conscience is captive to the word of God. May God help me. Amen. Then when it came to discerning the true gospel from the false gospel of the Roman church, one spiritual man armed with apostolic truth stood against the whole world, as it were. That's what the power of the Holy Spirit gives us in the apostolic gospel. And the truths that have been revealed to us through this apostolic witness to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Listen, beloved, that is an arrogant. The whole world is gonna think that's arrogant. How can you know? How can you say that you know such a thing? Oh, that's proud. That, beloved, that is not arrogant. It is arrogant to reject God's word and to seek wisdom outside of God's word. It is ultimately the very definition of humility to submit to what God has revealed. And to put your confidence in that. Even if the whole world thinks you're a big, fat idiot for doing it. 
It's the opposite of arrogant to submit to God's appointed means of revelation and not to the wisdom of men. Beloved, you're gonna encounter so-called Christian teachers who are gonna be brilliant orators, brilliant writers, brilliant podcasters, but ultimately say nothing of real substance. And how do you discern the true from the false? They may sound wise, but the Apostle Paul is going to explain later in chapter 3, their words are just wood, they're just hay, and they're just stubble because they're not ultimately rooted in the apostolic gospel. They are consigned to the fire. So how can you discern what is true and what's false? How can we determine whether something is from Christ and by the Spirit, whose entire ministry, by the way, is to glorify Christ? To whom will we listen if we are to be mature. Paul goes back to the apostolic we into verse 16, but we have the mind of Christ. Christ has given us, his apostles, his mind, such that to have fellowship with us and our message is to share our mind and to share in our mind is to share in the very mind of Christ. This, beloved, this, and only this is the foundation of the church. This and only this, this apostolic we, this and only this is the only true way to have fellowship with God. This is what true maturity looks like. Let's pray.